All right, kids ages 3 to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship in the back. And like I said, if you're a parent in that age range and, um, and you're like, what, what is this thing? Um, you can go back with your kids. As a matter of fact, we'd, we'd very much love that so that, um, so that you can get to know our volunteers and they can help you understand what's, what's coming up. But we love kids in this church. I don't, think, I don't know if you've noticed that. We've got a bazillion of them, so uh, we love to have them in worship as well. If you have a Bible with you, you can open it to the book of Romans. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship in that bulletin. Uh, it's going to be projected up here behind me. If you don't own a Bible, we have like an entire box full uh, in the back. There's a bunch on the table, and we've got a bunch more. Please grab one before you leave. That's our gift to you. Uh, we'd, we'd love for you to have one. It's important for you to have it in front of you, um, mainly because... We don't want anyone to be confused that, uh, that this is helpful thoughts from Rick. I have none. That's not what this is. Uh, this is a time for us to, to see what God has to say. Um, so as you're doing that, as you're turning there, let me, let me uh, draw us into this time. So we're in a series of messages in the book of Romans that we're calling Foundations. And we're saying that because the book of Romans lays a good foundation for what it means to be a Christian, what Christianity is all about. And that's needed because, to be honest... There's a lot of folks who are really confused about what Christianity is all about. And I don't just mean outside the church. I mean inside the church. Really confused. You know, we've been culturally conditioned to think that Christianity is part and parcel to like becoming Ned Flanders. Or just, if you don't know, please YouTube that. If you don't know what that is. Is this a Simpson reference? Come on, guys. No. All right. Or maybe it just means being really nice. Maybe being Christian is like having some generic belief in God and being really nice. It's not. That's not what Christianity is about. Like every, every worldview, every religion, every philosophy is based on several questions. Where did we come from? What's wrong? Um, what's the solution and where are we going? And we see that in everything from you know, our, our kind of generalized American spiritual patriotism. That seems to be like the, the, the sponsored religion of the nation. To, uh, to Buddhism, to atheism. They all answer those questions in different ways. And Christianity does that too. But it does so way different than you think. And our passage today begins answering one of those questions in a rather surprising way. So if you have your place in Romans chapter 1, our habit here is to stand. So if you'd stand with us in honor of God's word. I'm going to be reading verses 18 through 23 of chapter 1. As I do so, um, let us be mindful. This is God's word. It is not something that the church made up, picked, or um, decided for itself. It's something that lays claim on us. So let's hear it that way. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is God's word, and even if it's hard to believe, it's given so that we would flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, I do just ask that you would bless this time. You know how needy I am this morning. I know that I'm not the only one here. So I pray that you'd meet with us. 
that by your spirit you would make us aware of your presence and that you would, uh, with power, do what only you can do, which is to make the gospel take root in our hearts. Let Jesus and everything he said come to the forefront. Let the one who speaks and everything else fall to the wayside. For Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life. So we ask this in your name. Amen. Have a seat. So when I was growing up, Christianity was not something that I was into. I was not raised as a Christian. Uh, didn't go to church. Well, we went to church on um, Christmas and Easter. Uh, my wife calls that creasters. We were creasters. Uh, and, but cr- church was not something I was into. In fact, going into college, I was a convinced atheist. I don't know if you knew that about me. Uh, convinced, in fact. The reason was that I understood Christianity as giving one possible answer to the question, or the problem, rather, one possible solution to the problem of not being good. Does that sound familiar? Basically, basically it works like this. Here's this dude we call God. He wants us to be good, or not. But as long as we try hard and are sincere to be good, he's good with us, and will give us stuff. Right? Sound familiar? Now, the problem is that over time, if, if you're paying attention to anything, that begins to lose credibility. It's kind of like um, the, the kids in uh, Christmas Vacation who complain because they're not sure about Santa Claus because they were great last year and didn't get anything, right? It's like that kind of idea. You get enough years under your belt, you realize the calculus doesn't work. And so for me, that discredited the entire system. So let me say this clearly. If you're here this morning and, uh, and you're in that same position, it's kind of discredited the entire system for you, I'm super glad because that is not Christianity. The news is actually both worse and better than that. And this passage begins to work that out for us. So we're going to look at this in, in two ways this morning. There's an outline in your bulletin. If you're a note taker, there's an outline in your bulletin. If you're not, just leave it. Uh, but maybe that'll help you follow along. We're going to look at a deeper problem and then a deeper solution. Okay? Let's begin with a deeper problem. Uh, this book is written, this, this book, when, we, when Christians talk about books of the Bible, that sounds a little weird because they're like six pages long. Uh, but this is, we call this the book of Romans, the letter, it, it's really a letter uh, written by this guy named Paul. He was, he was an early Christian leader, what we call an apostle, who was like super religious, super moral, and totally against Christianity. Until he met Jesus, who showed him that his whole understanding of himself and of God had to be shifted. And so if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you'll notice that Paul's moved from his greeting to the, to the meat of what he's trying to communicate. He's going to spend the next, uh, spend the next um, three chapters answering fully the question, one of those questions that I talked about. What is our problem? And he begins by talking about revealing wrath. Now look down at verse 18. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now stop there. Here's the problem. I told you a few minutes ago that Christianity is different than you expected. And then we lead off with the wrath of God. Right? And I can almost almost see us all cringing as we were reading that. Uh, Stick with me for a second. Right? Look, I know a lot of us don't like the idea of God's wrath. Or maybe we do. Um, I mean, I know that we tend to think that it's inconsistent. God being angry is inconsistent with a loving God. But, but in reality, I wonder if, if, 
it's not necessarily God's wrath in general that we're against. I mean, think with me of just what's going on in our culture right now. Do you really think it would not be okay if God were upset with the kinds of things that's being uh, spoken against with the Me Too movement? I think God's totally happy with that. Not the movement, but what they're speaking against. I think he's like, oh yeah, whatever. Dudes can do whatever they want. Do you think he's okay with parents chaining their 12 children to their beds for years? Like, would you be upset if you found out God was upset with that? That there was wrath about that? How about a sports doctor who has molested at least 150 girls? Think God's okay with that? Would you be okay if God were okay with that? Because my guess is no. I I mean, I, I would think that the idea of a loving God necessitates him being angry at things like that, right? So I don't think it's the the idea of God being wrathful in general that we're upset with. I I think if we're honest, I think if we're honest, the idea that we dislike is uh, is whether God's angry at the things we think he should be angry about. Right? And then if he's angry about stuff that we, we don't think he should be angry about, then we get upset. We don't like the idea that God could be angry at something that we think is okay. And so if we're being honest, we think God should agree with us. And for many of us, our God always does. In the Bible, God, God's wrath is defined as his perfectly righteous antagonism towards evil. It isn't uncontrolled or raging. I know when I say wrath, we think of like out of control people, right? It's not uncontrolled. It's not raging. It is his response to the defacing, destruction, and dehumanizing of his creation as he intended it. You with me? So Paul says that this wrath, this this kind of anger at this defacing, destruction, and dehumanizing of his creation, uh, that... That this wrath is revealed from heaven, which is another way of saying that God's throne. And and it's against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And again, like, half expected as I'm reading this that you get images in your mind of some dude sweating a lot and pounding on a pulpit and red-faced. I promise I, well, it's warm in here, but I don't think I'm going to get red-faced, just just to warn you. Um, Those two words are important. The first one in the original language, because the New Testament was written originally in Greek, not in English. The first one means an offense towards God. Now, hear me on this. God actually can be offended. He's, it's not a, God is not a force. He's not some kind of disinterested power. He's a person, and persons can be offended. Right? So that means an offense against God. The second word deals with offenses against one another. We normally, we normally translate that as injustice. Now, here's the kicker. These offenses are not generic nor are these offenses left up to the individual to determine, well, I don't really think I offended it. Nor is it like, well, I feel offended by such and such. They are offenses determined by God, defined by Him. And I think we get that, right? I mean, we may not agree. But the idea that the God who's the creator of everything kind of sets the parameters for what, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. I mean, that makes sense in theory, at least. Like I said, we, you may not agree with that. You may be like, ah, I'm not okay with that. But, but it makes sense. It's not irrational from that standpoint. So, so far, this sounds exactly like we've come to expect. God is mad because we aren't good, right? Well, let's keep reading. It says, who by their unrighteousness, that's the ungodliness and, and, and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress 
the truth. Now here's what that means. The godlessness and injustice that we do stems from an unrighteousness that we are. Let me say that again. The offenses against God and the offenses against others that we do stems from an unrighteousness that we are. At least that's the position of the Bible, right? And this is where Christianity breaks with every other worldview. The Bible teaches us that what we do comes from what we are, not the reverse. Not the reverse, that, that, what, that somehow we define who we are by what we do. Uh, you know, even Jesus said that, that it's from the heart that all kinds of these bad things spring. And that that's what is actually broken, what drives our behavior. And Paul's saying the same thing. He's telling us that the godlessness and injustice which arouses God's wrath comes from this unrighteousness in us which suppresses the truth. What that means is simply this. That word suppresses means to to restrain or to to drive down. In other words, this state, uh, this unrighteousness that we are, that results in godlessness and injustice, also results in us having a twisted view of reality by our nature. Now, that's dealing with the wrath. Let's look at how Paul explains the reason for it. Look down at verses 19 and 20. What Paul is laying out here in Christian theology is what's called general revelation. Okay? You don't need to remember that term. All you need to know is it's, what it means is what, how, how uh, God is revealed in creation. Paul says that God made it plain. And what is made plain is God's power and his divine nature. Here's what that means. Uh, earlier in the fall, my wife and I took our uh, four kids and we head up to Humpback Rock for a hike. Maybe a lot of... I'm, we're Valley folks, right? So you've done humpback more than likely. If not, you really should, but not this time of year. It would be miserable. Uh, go in the spring or go in the fall. And so you're heading up. Some of you have been there. You, you head up the mountain. It takes a little while, but you get up there, and then you go out on these rocks, and you stand out, and you get this beautiful vista of the entire valley. And as you stand out there, no matter what we tend to believe about God, when we see something like that, we get this sense of, of wonder, Right? Of majesty, maybe even gratefulness. You ever wonder why? Like if you're here this morning and, and, and you're not sure about the whole God thing, you ever wonder why you, you go to the beach and you see the sunset? That would be on the West Coast. Or the sunrise, you know? Uh, and, and, and as that's happening, like you just get this sense of thankfulness. Who are you thankful to? See, the Bible would say that we go to thankfulness in those moments because God is revealed in those things. And we thank Him for it. Even if we say we don't believe in Him. And that knowledge of God, Paul says, is so that we are without excuse. And that's hard for us, right? Because we love to know that the expectations for us have been made really clear. Uh, But with something like God, that seems really unrealistic. Uh, That is because in our Western European culture, which we are still a part of, I know we're Americans, we like to be Americans, but we're part of that Western European culture, Uh, for several hundred years now, um, we we have been taught in our culture that religious belief is something that is inherently unreliable can't actually be known. It actually is culturally conditioned. Like, if you're in a different culture, you'll have a different belief. Now, of course... 
modern Western European culture is the one that, the only one, in fact, that throughout time has actually thought that, which tends to mean that if we're believing that, then maybe we've been conditioned by our culture to believe something that may not entirely be accurate. So what Paul means, though, is, is not that everything that can be known about God can be gotten through creation, only that which should tell us that there is a creator to whom we owe our life and allegiance and our worship. But, he says, we suppress the truth and so become futile in our thinking and our hearts are darkened. Now, here's the kicker. Look down at verse 23. He says, and they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Okay? What Paul is talking about there is what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of anything other than God. Now, for many of us, we're like, what is that? How does that apply? Because worship is a really churchy word, Right? Super churchy. Uh, and, and so worship, even if you've grown up in church, means what we did uh, you know, for the last 35 or so minutes. Singing and something like that. It's weird. Christians do it. That's, that's odd. Uh, but that's not entirely what worship is. Worship means giving something ultimate worth in your life. And all of us do that. It's depending on that thing to give you value, to give you meaning, and to make things right for you. And the Bible would say if that's anything other than God, that is idolatry. So Paul is saying, sum up here, that that God's wrath is revealed against godlessness and injustice, behaviors. Those behaviors stem from a condition that we all have now by nature, a state of unrighteousness. And in that state, we actively suppress the truth about God and replace him with other things to worship. Okay? That's the argument. Real simple. You may not agree with it, but that's where he's going with it. Now, that was a lot. So let me try and make this a little more clear by looking at an issue of the heart. No matter what you have been taught or have assumed about Christianity, the Bible teaches us very clearly uh, that our assumption needs to be destroyed. And that assumption is that if God exists, he's ultimately concerned about our behavior. He's not. That isn't to say he's happy with that behavior, right? The wrath of God is revealed against all godlessness and and injustice of men. That means he gets angry at the behavior. But ultimately what he's concerned about is not that. And it does, the Bible does that by saying that our behavior stems from a previous commitment Okay, um, if uh, I was a philosophy religion major in college uh, at JMU, go Dukes, and um, we would call that in philosophy an a priori judgment, which means that it's it's a commitment that you have that takes place before argument or action. What the Bible says, like I said before, is that our behavior is bad because our hearts are bad. And our hearts are bad because we have decided to worship something other than God. Now, some of you are like, what? Crick, I don't do worship. I got dragged here because I'm supposed to be get, taken out to lunch later. And I'm expecting a really good meal because you talk a long time, right? Um, or others of you are like, Rick, I worship God. I've been in church my whole life. I get it. I get it. I'm going to speak to both of those things in a minute. But let me deal with how the Bible understands this problem so we can get on the same page. The Bible understands that humanity, us, are, that we're dependent creatures. Okay? Uh, here's what I mean. You and I need things to live. And I don't just mean biologically. Obviously, we need air, we need food, we need water, right? 
But more than that, the way the Bible talks about it is that we were made for worship. We were made. This is why we all have that issue where we all put something in that position because we were made for that. We were made to depend on something. To put something in that ultimate position. Ultimately, we were made to worship God. To have Him in that position in our lives. So that our our value, our meaning, our view of reality would come from Him. That's what He designed us for. But the problem is, is that right at the beginning, we came to believe a lie that God couldn't be trusted. That He was holding us back. And so we decided to betray Him and seek independence. We're like, you know, I can do this on my own. I'm good. I don't need you in that ultimate place. I don't need anything in that ultimate place. But here's the problem. We can't change our design. Like if, you, if, if there's a fish tomorrow who decides, you know what, I'm moving to the mountains. That ain't going to go well. Right? That's because it can't change the fact that it was made for water. We wanted to be independent like God, but instead we simply replaced God with other things because we cannot change our design. And that's what Paul is talking about. We are stuck seeking life from everything but God when nothing but God could actually give it. And what's worse, we can't make it better independently because independence is the problem, which means we need rescue. The problem isn't our behavior, it's the heart from which the behavior comes. A heart that is stuck rejecting God. At least that's the way the Bible describes it, right? Now, that's the problem as Paul explains it. So let me get to a solution and and in that, to the questions I raised a minute ago. Because not everyone in this room is convinced this is an issue, right? That's okay. That's fine. You know, for some of us, we don't think we worship anything. It's all churchy and weird. Maybe you think religion is for weak people or stupid people. Which is okay, you can admit that. I'm not offended by that. Listen to me, everybody worships something. Everyone places something in that place of ultimate importance in our lives. Maybe maybe it's just that you've never really looked at that. Others of us, though, have been religious our whole lives, and so we're like, I go to church, so none of this applies to me. But here's the thing. One, Paul is writing this to a church. And he's going to spend the next three chapters showing that this is actually a universal problem. That this is our problem, not, as, uh, not based on what we believe as much as who we are as humans. So maybe the issue is that you've just not seen it because you're convinced that God is cool with your church attendance, right? Pass the plate, drop something in, God's cool with it. Let me give you some examples, maybe from culture, that might explain a little bit better of what we're talking about when we talk about this. Some of you remember the movie Rocky, right? I just learned recently that Stallone wrote that movie. How did I not know that? I don't know how I didn't know that. Anyway, so Stallone, you know, Sylvester Stallone, you know the story. Rocky's this dude from the streets of Philly, and he's training to to box Apollo Creed, the world champion. Um, Carl Weathers, and it's awesome. It's going to be this great fight. And he's obsessed, not with winning. That's what we'd expect, right? I mean, you you don't go into a boxing match to lose. He was obsessed not with winning, but with going the distance. Right? Going the distance. And and there's this this moment when Adrian uh, asks him, she she says, why is it so important to you that you go the distance? And he says, 
after some argument, they're having a fight. Why is it so important that you go the distance? He says, so I can prove that I'm not a bum. His not being a bum, his value, his worth is wrapped up in, can I take enough punches from this dude without going down? And he's obsessed with doing it. But that's a movie, right? Movies aren't real. Then, then of course, we have um, someone who, who is about to, hopefully he won't have the red gloves on when he plays today, but a um, dude by the name of Tom Brady, right? Tom Brady. And listen, if, if the sports stuff is hard for you, I'm just going to apologize right off the bat. It's a lot of sports stuff. Anyway, so Tom Brady, Super Bowl winning quarterback. He's won five Super Bowl rings, like a ton in New England. Um, after his fourth, he gave an interview, right? So you got Tom Brady, Super Bowl champion, four time at this point, four time Super Bowl champion, supermodel wife, tons of money, Uggs whenever he wants them. Like he's, Tom Brady is like, he has everything. And it said, and in this interview he gave, uh, afterwards he said, after he won his fourth ring, he looked around and he said, is this it? Is this, is this it? I just thought maybe there was more. He'd worked his whole life to be the pinnacle. He's easily, you know, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame, probably considered the greatest quarterback of all time. Is this it? There was still an emptiness after achieving everything he thought would make his world right. Last one. Ronda Rousey. Ronda Rousey, um, for a long time, was considered like the baddest woman on the planet, right? Um, MMA champion, won most of her fights the way Tyson did in the 80s, like within seconds. And then she lost. Ugly. Ugly. This lady by the name of Holly Holmes. And afterwards she said she sat in the locker room and she said, Who am I if I'm not this? And she contemplated suicide. See, this isn't, this isn't a Christian issue. This is a human one. So let me ask you some diagnostic questions to help you see what it is that maybe you're worshiping. Maybe, okay? Just, just, let's just say benefit of the doubt. Maybe, all right? One, what is it in your life that when it is taken from you, brings on a sudden onset of intense anger. Right? Like that thing that when, when suddenly it's taken, uh, you, you, get, you respond with this quick, fierce anger that later you look back and go, wow, that was weird. I got really angry and I don't really know why. Is it your image of being competent? Right? So in public, when, when it looks like you're not competent, suddenly you get really angry. Is it your money? Things didn't happen like you thought they should with your paycheck or your W-2s. Or... Is it your power and your influence? Maybe it's your moral superiority if you've been a churchgoer for a long time. That's the first one. What, when it's taken from you, makes you really angry? Second one. What do you think, if you get this thing, will make your life worth living? What is it that you think to yourself, if I just get this, my life will be worth it. I'll be worth it. Like, is it love? If I can finally find that spouse or a different spouse, one that appreciates me, life will be worth living. Is it beauty? With every passing year, things just get more and more difficult. I ain't just talking to the ladies, dudes. Come on, man. I know. I know. 
Is it being desired? Wanting to be wanted. If I can just be wanted, life will be worth it. Is it success? Is it that next promotion? What is it that you think that when you get it will make life worth living? Last one. There are others, but I'm just doing three. And this one is especially for you if you're a Christian. Okay? So if you're a Christian this morning, listen close. If God stood right here and said to you, you can have me or blank, and you fill that in, but you can't have both. What fills that blank that makes you think, I don't know. I'm just not sure. You you may think that's crazy. I've been in positions with people who have proclaimed Jesus for years. And they came to that moment and they said, I can't do it. Listen, I'm not speaking from on high. And I know preachers can oftentimes sound like that. So let me just share a little insight with you. Last week I came through those doors and I came in this room and I saw um, a couple of people that I wasn't expecting in the room um, and suddenly my heart went sideways because I thought that they were not going to be impressed with what I was going to say later. Suddenly I was a mess. I was an absolute basket case because I was wrapping my value and my personhood on whether or not someone else thought I was smart. I was worshiping being seen as intelligent. Friends, that is idolatry. It is looking to something other than God for what only He can give. So the second thing I want to talk about, that's the first thing. That's diagnosing the problem, and hopefully those will be helpful. The second thing is this idea of double revealing. What this passage tells us is that this idolatry, this replacing of God, which results in godlessness and injustice, uh, because it defaces, dehumanizes, and ultimately destroys us, brings God's wrath. Listen, offenses against God and injustice towards people happens in large part, if not exclusively because we have replaced God with other things. And when we do that, it brings guilt. That's what that wrath stuff is talking about because it's a personal betrayal of the God who loves us. But listen, this passage in particular talks about that being revealed. But this isn't the first time Paul has talked about something being revealed. If you were here last week, you will remember Paul talking about something else being revealed. That it was God's righteousness that's revealed. And that meant his faithfulness to fulfill his promise to rescue us. And friends, this is a Christian church, and so that's, we believe that's what Jesus did. We are stuck. And look, I know you feel this at times. Even if you don't believe a lick of what I've said. I know you feel this at times. How can we change our hearts to not look at success or pleasure or just comfort and forgetting pain when it's all we seem to trust in? How can we do that when we're stuck? We can't. And God's not asking us to. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to live a life fully worshiping God, the life that we were meant to live. And he came to die to bear the judgment, the wrath that our godlessness and unrighteousness deserved. And that's why Paul says that God's wrath is revealed. It's revealed in the same way his righteousness is revealed. It's revealed in Jesus dying to bear it. 
Jesus came to do everything we need to make us right with God, to deal with his wrath, to, to rescue us from the situation that we got ourselves in, which means, friends, that God is not asking you and me to fix it. Right? That's why when Pam was up here and she was talking, she said, when I got this, it was like this burden came off of my shoulders. Well, she didn't even know this, but that's a beautiful image from the history of Christianity. A little book called Pilgrim's Progress. She didn't even know it. She never even read it. And yet, that was the exact thing that she felt. Because that's what happens when you realize, God's not asking me to fix it. He's not actually asking me to fix me. You simply lay your weight on Jesus instead of in your efforts. In fact, friends, your efforts to fix it are actually making it worse. Return to dependence on God through Jesus. But the last thing I want to talk about, because that's, that's a really big deal. But the last thing I want to talk about is the idea of a better God. Here's the, uh, the other side of this equation. If you're here today and you've been trusting in your success, and I know that's probably not as big a deal here in our culture locally as it would be, say, if, if we were in, like, uh, D.C. Or the D.C. metro area. Or, or these high-pressure environments. But if you're here today in success, you think success is going to make you right. It's going to make you somebody. Let me ask you a question. How much? How much is going to do it? If it's having everyone like you, what happens when someone gets angry at you? Because they will. If it's being the most moral person in the room, what do you do when you mess up? And don't lie. Don't lie. I know you do. I do too. We all do. Let me speak more personally. If, like last week, I'm looking to people to see or to think that I'm smart or a competent pastor or a great leader and I'm looking to those things to make me worth something how will I know when I've arrived or worse how can I ever find rest the answer is you can't you can't you have to keep it up and you never know if you've done enough which means that if you're looking to those things you're enslaved to those things I have to keep working harder. I have to keep pressing towards success. Because if I'm not a success, what am I? You know what I mean, don't you? You know what it is to hate overworking but feeling like you can't stop. You know what it's like to despise social media but you can't stop looking to see if someone liked your last post. Because man, you just you have to have those likes. You know what it is to hate being, always being a doormat to others, but being terrified of standing up for yourself because they might leave you if you do. You know what it's like to fail only to scurry so that no one else sees you because moralism offers no forgiveness. Here's the reality. You're going to fail. You're going to fail because you're not enough. Not everyone will or even can like you. Sorry. It's just true. And some of you are like, I know, because I don't like you right now. <laughs> I know. Uh, actually, it doesn't bother me. Sorry to say. Um, you know that your success will never stop the ache in your soul that says you are broken. Your money is never going to keep you safe. So let me ask you, when you fail these gods that you would never call gods, I get that. When you fail these things, how do you appease them? How do you atone for your failure? Can I tell you something awesome? Jesus is the only God who loves you completely when you failed him utterly. 
He's the only God who doesn't ask you to work your way to Him, but instead tells you of everything He did to work His way to you. He's the only God who can actually deliver on the promise of life, love, and peace. Money, respect, power, morality, they are good things, but they are not God things. They are great ideas, but they're terrible gods. You see, what I thought was ridiculous when I was a teenager, maybe what you've given up on also, is this concept that God is a machine. Because I did the good stuff, and he just never delivered. Ever. The junk just kept happening. And I went, what's the use? So we do things for him to get things from him. And then, you know, if you've been raised in a Christian church, you throw Jesus somewhere in there. You're not really sure why, but I mean, I've got to say Jesus, so I'm going to throw that in. What Christianity says, friends, is that our problem isn't what we need to do, but who we need to trust. Jesus has provided everything you're looking elsewhere for. So my call to you this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you've been in the church forever or this is your first time in it, is to come to him and receive it. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we ask your grace over this time. Um, It was long, and um, I hope my friends will forgive me for that. But we pray that you would drive this message into our hearts. Not things I've said, but what you say in your word. Jesus, we are thankful that you are a better God than any that we could create in our heads. So we look to you and ask for you to continually drive us back to you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.